All right, good morning and welcome to this episode of the Level Up Podcast. Uh, I apologize to all of you out there uh, waiting for the last uh, five or six minutes. We've had a little bit of a slow start this morning. We had some uh, tech issues that we've now uh, solved. So nonetheless, super, super happy and grateful to get started today. My, my guest today is someone that I hold in high regard, and I've been a big fan for uh, many years. Uh, a lot of you know Dr. Drew as a fixture on television and radio for more than 35 years. He is a doctor of internal medicine. He's an addiction specialist. He examines issues through practical experience and science. Dr. Drew is highly educated. He's deeply passionate, and I believe uniquely qualified to answer questions around all types of subjects, but especially addiction, habits, social issues, uh, political trends and views today, uh, business, and of course, course health. You've probably read one of his many books, or you've certainly seen him on the Dr. Drew Show, uh, Dr. Drew After Dark, Celebrity Rehab, Love Line, one of his podcasts, or seen him on Oprah, Ellen, or one of many other uh, North America broadcasts. Dr. Drew, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. I, I you must, have you must have searched far and wide to find me talking about a financial matter. <laughs> that that uh, Rachel Ray conversation was one I'd forgot about long ago. So good job. Yeah. Well, I think the advice was uh, was great. And and just to kind of frame it for for our our listening audience, uh, we run uh, the largest uh, mortgage finance company in the country. We have more than six thousand uh, people that are with us. So we have a lot of our uh, agents and team on there. We also broadcast publicly through this Level Up program, which has been a very successful uh, program with a very very broad reach. And today's a little bit different. A lot of times we talk about uh, issues, um, you know, that that we can share our experiences with on building teams and leadership. And we're going to hit on some of that. But I really, really want to hit on sort of the 800-pound gorilla, and I want to talk much more today around uh, mental illness and the struggles that we're having, the impact of, of COVID-19. So we are thrilled to have an expert like you on our program. So we'll jump right in. Um, yep. You're a uh, highly sought-after uh, medical practitioner, a celebrity, and obviously an entrepreneur. Uh, but yet you make time for numerous podcasts, interviews. You've done an incredible job on your uh, brand. So the first thing that comes to mind when interviewing Dr. Drew is speak to us around balance and how you make it all happen. Balance? Is that the word you use? Right. I, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm the greatest person to uh, maybe we'll have to get my, bring my wife in here and, and ask her if I actually achieved that. Um, uh, I am uh, a workaholic, a lo longstanding workaholic, although I'm somewhat in remission. But uh, like anyone with that kind of an engine, it still kind of goes at a pretty high pitch. I mean, I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning and struggle to get home by 10 every night when I was sort of doing three different medical careers simultaneously. One, I was running an addiction recovery program. I was running an inpatient medical practice. I was doing medical services in a psychiatric hospital. And I was running an outpatient medical practice. And I was teaching. Uh, and that was pretty insane. And I did that for about 10 years and everything else has felt like a vacation since then. <laughs> and since about 2010, uh, I sort of looked at myself in the mirror and said, you know, you've done medicine excessively for 30 years. You can lighten that up now and start to start to dedicate yourself to more media outlets and more media endeavors as a, as a, before it was always just sort of like, Hey, leave me alone to practice medicine. I'll do these things. I'll find a way to do them and insert them in my schedule. But I, I, I'm not, that's not my primary focus. It became my primary focus in like 2011 or so. And, uh, and as such, every day is different than the next. And so I, and I have somewhat control over my schedule. So I guess the, <laughs> 
I, I'm not a great person to talk about balance, except to say, <laughs> except to say that I do find always time to spend with my family, always find time to exercise. I struggle find, to find time to sleep. Uh, and uh, the COVID situation has also led me to uh, appreciate the the importance of uh, fresh air and sunshine, which has had a remarkable effect on my affect. Generally, I found the entire COVID experience to be mm, maybe profoundly is too strong a word, but very depressing. Uh, I'm prone to depression. I had a depressive episode when I was 18 to 22, which is sort of typically when these things come on. And once you've had one episode, you are more likely to have another. And uh, this has been a depressing experience for me. And as such, the other part of balance that I've sort of been struggling with is finding a way to have purpose and meaning. And we've all got to figure this out in the current environment. Yeah, what a great answer. Uh, thank you for that. And and speaking of um, the COVID-19, I mean, we've seen record uh, increases in alcoholism and drug mm -hmm. abuse in streaming por uh, pornography and all mm -hmm. kinds of insidious habits. Um, you know, I think that we've been isolated for so long and and, you know, it's still very concerning. I mean, in most. Markets no, Gary, Canada, we're, we're, we're we are we are being asked to live our lives like a drug addict. This is how drug addicts live. They isolate, they withdraw, they hide, they feel powerless, they feel ashamed. I mean, we are being encouraged. I, I don't know what it feels like in Canada. You know, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Here, it's, you know, we're sort of raised with the every man for themselves really is a basic kind of uh, sort of feeling as opposed to we're all in it together, which is a different sort of way to sort of think about your, your social role. But we are being... Uh, strikingly discouraged from uh, in, in the United States from our instinctive sort of upbringing, which is get out there and fight it out. We're being told shelter in place, which is a mm. shocking thing to hear from a government right. and frankly could not be worse for our mental health. I mean, when we, when we, in, when we create models of depression in animal models to study, what they do is they put mammals on electrical grids and they teach the animal when the electricity comes on to move to another grid and you'll be out, you'll be away from harm. Well, the way you induce depression is you electrify both grids and you teach the animal they're powerless and they just curl up and they become, they become passive and depressed. And that now is a model for depression we use. And that's exactly what we've done with essentially all of North America. Wow, absolutely crazy. So the so the question begs to be asked, what can we do as society? Now that we're aware of that, and you brought it to our attention. I think we all, you know, felt it, but it hasn't been explained in in that yeah. kind of simplicity. What can we do to combat that fear and anxiety in ourselves and our daily lives, but in our children as well? Well, the, the children that we don't even know the full impact on children. The fact that they're the, the what one of the things we develop as you know, we need as we develop is the capacity to see other faces. Like we literally develop it. The research shows that we live some research. I, I feel strongly this is accurate research that we develop the capacity to understand our emotional landscape by seeing it reflected back to us on the faces of other people. We learn about ourselves. We learn about others. We learn about emotions by studying faces. That's what we do as human beings. The fusiform gyrus is highly developed in the, in the human animal. And 
We don't know what the impact is going to be of hiding faces from the development of children. We don't know the impact on their socio-social development uh, as they as they are taken out of school. We you can imagine the cognitive effects. I mean, this could be profound on particularly. I, I worry about sort of eight to fifteen year olds where where I'm seeing lots of depression. We're actually seeing suicide of people under ten. Of course, we're seeing substance okay. use and just overwhelming fear. They can't contextualize what's going on. They're being told it's the end of the world. Their family's under threat. Imagine you're 10 years old and that's what you're being told. I mean, you know, every time a 10 year old sees a crime story in the news, they assume that's going to happen to them. That's normal 10 year old thinking. Well, when the whole world is shut down and there's this invisible creature coming after you, you can imagine the impact on their mood and anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. It's just uh, we've all uh, struggled and seen it firsthand in our families, mental health over the years and the impact of. Well, let, me, let me say another thing, too, as long as we're, I'm talking yeah, about sort of the, the different yeah. age, you know, the effects on different age groups. Is anybody talking to old people? That, that's the at risk group, right? Over yeah. 65, but particularly right. over 75. I talk to lots of them mm -hmm. I, because at a turn us, I see lots of elderly people. And. This may be my skewed experience. I would urge you to go ask your family members what they'd like you to do. What I'm hearing is, stop it. I only have four or five years left. Don't take one or two of those years away from me I, for a 10% right. risk and some illness that I will protect myself from. This is what I'm hearing over and over and over again from the at-risk population, which is don't destroy my grandkids' life. Don't destroy, destroy my children's job. Let me protect myself. And or not, I'll take my risk. I'm hearing mm -hmm. lots of that for older folk, which is the group we're trying to protect. So please mm -hmm. do talk. It's also a great opportunity to talk about. And when we were in the throes of this whole thing, I kept encouraging people to talk about end of life mm -hmm. issues and nursing homes and whether or not you actually want ever yourself to be in a nursing home. How do you want your family to care for you should you get a terminal illness or you have advanced age? The average life expectancy in this country after admission to a nursing home is six to 18 months, mm -hmm. six to 18 months. Wow. Now, personally, and I did lots of nursing home care. I mean, lots. <laughs> I never, I never want to be in one of those institutions. If I get, if I'm so far gone that I need round the clock institutional care, let's call it quits. Let's, let's okay, give so, me some palliative care. And that's that. So I want to drill down on that point. So what you're saying right now for us that are, are, are hypersensitive to our elders, to our parents in their seventies and eighties, and we're trying to shield them. We're trying to protect them right now. We're not trying to expose them. You're saying for heaven's sakes, go the other way, embrace well, no, them. You, no, I'm not you, saying go the other way. I'm not saying go the other way. I'm, I'm saying talk to them and see what they want. <laughs> Do they right. want to forego? I've heard this a lot. You're right. 80 years old. You have three years left, maybe, maybe five years left. And you want to go forego a full year of contact with your grandkids. And by the way, right. the end could come within the five. Who knows? I mean, the aging is a, is a nefarious process. And, and right. just make sure you're, you're consistent. Right. And now if they say, yes, I want to be completely protected. I want to live in a bubble. Please don't expose me. Then don't. But, but this business of just everything's coming from an on high is a, is a is a is yeah. a is a miscarriage. We we need to yeah. navigate this. We need there are consequences of everything we're doing, and we open by talking about mental health. The mental health consequences have been profound, profound, right. and we are going to see numbers that rival COVID in terms of excess death from mental health consequences. The World Health Organization is on the record saying, do not lock down. It only makes poor people poorer, and making poor people poorer accelerates the mental health consequences. We know that for sure.
Right. So I love that advice. Talk to your uh, your parents and if they want to forego it and they, they don't want to give up a year of their connection with their grandkids, right. uh, embrace that. I mean, well, follow their wishes, right? Great navigate point. it. Just, just don't. The, 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 again, I want to avoid the shelter in place. Mm. That is the most destructive thing from a mental health standpoint. It's how you induce powerlessness in a population. What I'm saying is if, if you want to sort of conceptualize it psychologically is I want you to fight to navigate, navigate this thing, navigate it, be, be smart, navigate it. We'll get it, fight it, let's do it, let's navigate, but let's not become passive and let's not become powerless because that is adverse to our mental health. Yeah, thank you for that. So I want to speak about uh, mental health because it's finally becoming mainstream over the last few years. Uh, you know, organizations uh, worldwide have been talking much more. Uh, I am a, I am a, a probably a, a, what do you consider an authority on mental health? My brother is bipolar, schizoaffective. He has mm. been in and out of incarceration. When he mm. didn't feel well, he started to self-medicate. Uh, he's he's doing a little better now. He calls me 14 times a day and I take every single phone call from him. But I made the common mistake in the early days. He was by he, he was diagnosed at about 30 years old. And when he started to exhibit bizarre you know, behavior and do weird things, I got angry at him. I pushed him away and I said, Greg, what are you doing? I, I can't believe it. And I, I, it was tough love. And, and right. you know, with what I know now, it was completely the wrong thing. I needed to wrap my arms around him and love him and support and right. listen to him. So what I'd like to speak about, because mental health, is, uh, mental health can be obviously depression. It can be bipolar. It can be schizophrenia. It can be schizoaffective. It can be a host of other uh, ailments. But what I want to share with our audience, because nothing is more important than our family and our kids. Forget about business and entrepreneurship and all that sort yeah. of stuff. What are the beginning signs that we should be out, you know, looking out for in our children or a family member. Okay. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you because you've already, you've already asked me three questions. And if I get a fourth, I'll forget the other three. So, so let's, let's line this up a little bit. Um, uh, I've already forgotten one of them. So, so serious mental illness, we're talking about serious mental illness. And one of the ridiculous qualities of serious mental illness is that we treat it differently than other medical conditions. And that is wrong and silly and insane. The brain gets sick just the way the heart and the pancreas get sick. We should not treat it any differently than we treat any other organ system in the body. Now, the manifestations include behavioral type changes, but those are the symptoms, much like you get chest pain if you have cardiac disease, these are the behavioral manifestations of the symptoms of the brain disorders. They People need not to be stigmatized. They need not to be avoided. They need to be dealt with like someone with a medical problem in a major organ system, period, end. And if you, it's just full stop. If you treat it, the medical record differently, if you treat the environment of care differently, if you approach the patient differently, you are stigmatizing and you are adding to us being less able to treat these conditions effectively. There's treatment out there for brain disorders and the treatments work. They're not necessarily full foolproof in terms of full remission. They are not without, um, like any chronic mental illness, medical illness, there's remissions and there are uh, decompensations. Same is true with brain disorders. The issue, the, the most important thing you can do for someone with any of these brain disorders is to remain in contact with them. Contact is what diminishes stigma. It also, it makes you understand and recoil less 
and it helps them feel like they aren't something wrong with them as a person. Their personhood is not impaired. They're a person dealing with a brain condition. Now, I understand that you, because we don't understand these things and you, they may feel scary to you, I urge you to overcome that fear and to maintain contact. Now, the other issue is what do you do with somebody with mental illness, particularly if you're close to them? And you mentioned rejecting somebody versus embracing. There's a middle ground. Uh, there's a middle ground where you can be firm and love somebody. You can, and if you need to be out of their life for some reason, there may be reasons why, you can do that with an, a love. You can do that with embracing impulse. So to reject someone because you're angry or you are not understanding what's going on or what, what they're not complying with your wishes, whatever it might be, rejection is not, not the way to go about this. The way to do it is to be firm, set consequences. Now, some of those consequences may mean that I, I can't be around you for, for right now, but know that not being around that person may impair their ability to stay with their medical care. So it's very important. Now, in this country, we, we have laws in place that prevent people like me from helping people with brain disorders. It's truly insane in our country. It's why we have homelessness. It is the primary cause. Don't, don't believe any of the rhetoric otherwise. That is why we have these conditions that people on the street, because we are not allowed to take somebody with mental illness and say, come with us, unless that illness is dementia. Then we have to do it. We're obliged right. to do it. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And then yeah. finally, uh, what signs and symptoms might you see to let somebody know that they're in trouble? I mean, it depends on the age. And of course, you know, you're asking about the entire, <laughs> right. the entire um, uh, you know, home of the DSM-4, DSM-5. Right. And uh, it depends on the age. Uh, obviously, in adolescence, uh, you see a drop in grades is the number one sign that you're having a problem. Change in friends, change in appearance, change in appetite, change in sleep pattern. The adolescents don't cry or complain of things quite the way an adult might. They, they aren't sort of objectively aware enough of what's happening to them. They just are engaging in the behaviors that are motivated by the moods or the, the brain states. So as you get into adulthood, um, it depends on the condition. Again, um, obviously, substance use is a sign. The, the real threshold um, is difficulty functioning. And functioning includes uh, your relationship functioning, your work or school functioning, your legal functioning, your financial functioning, and your legal status. You know, I, did I get all five in there? Did I repeat I think, something? I think you did. I think I repeated that. So relationships, work or school, finance, health, legal. Health, you're, you're, health, you're not attending to your health. That's the one I left out. Uh, the, and you're having trouble functioning with those domains. And uh, these are thought, you know, you, the, there's a behavioral sort of changes associated with that. Things like sleep patterns, um, appetite patterns, uh, appearances, these sorts of things are signs that something is going on. Now that something may be organic. This is the thing that people miss more often than not. Do not assume psychological or psychiatric really ever until there's been a thorough medical evaluation. Uh, 10 years of my life was spent doing medical services in a psychiatric hospital. And I would say 20% of the time, there were, we've, I discovered an underlying medical condition that was either causing or contributing to the psychiatric wow. syndrome. So always get that evaluation. And as you get older, it's even more important that the medical issues become evaluated. And there's a certain amount of overlap in the older population because strokes and cerebrovascular events and various kinds of uh, issues of aging start to have psychiatric manifestations. So these things, uh, and they're treated differently than if they're purely psychiatric. So it, 
It requires proper medical management, like, like I've been saying. Yeah, so thank you for uh, sharing. I mean, I know we all have, I often say to people, show me someone without a, without a problem and I'll show you a liar. Uh, it, it pops up, uh, you know, throughout our life. So being able to recognize that and uh, firmly supporting them um, and staying in contact is, is some yeah, really great takeaway advice. And, and people confuse what firmness is. Firmness is holding the, now, the firm is not saying, oh, go, come home and we'll let you use drugs. That's not right. Firm, <laughs> firm is come home. I'm going to make yeah. you get up and get dressed every day. You're going to have a, three meals a day. You're not going to use drugs in our house. Come home. Mm. Let's go. Let's do yeah. this. Uh, as opposed to, what we're doing a lot of these days is, oh, no, please come home. And, right. and people are dying in their bedrooms is what's right. what I see a lot of. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I've heard you say stress is good, but distress can be trouble. Can yeah. you explain that to us? Well, I think people uh, get confused about, you know, there's so much rhetoric coming out of really the 70s and 80s where oh, stress is a killer, stress is a killer. <laughs> no, stress, stress is uh, inspiring. Stress is how we get things done. Stress motivates us to do things. It's when we are powerless, which is what I've been complaining about since the beginning of this, or where we are, um, e e stress should motivate us to action and motivate us to do things. That's good. When we can't act, when we can't manage our feelings, that's when it becomes more problematic. And uh, underlying, uh, beneath that is the capacity for emotional regulation. And we, we don't think a lot about that in our culture, but there's a system there's a reason why we can understand our emotions and why we can kind of regulate them. And we, when things are dysregulated, too prolonged, too intense, too negative, there's usually a reason for that. Either some underlying brain condition or the more common thing we see these days, again, I'm speaking from your friends down south here, childhood trauma. Childhood trauma has a profound effect on the ability to regulate emotions and people then spend a lot of their life trying to solve that problem that is not solvable uh, without some kind of treatment. Yeah, got it. Makes sense. Um, it's interesting because uh, today so much of what we do is social media and the biggest uh, movement is, you know, TikTok and all these different platforms. But yet, you know, in many ways are incredibly powerful and we can use them in our business to communicate faster than ever before. Uh, but I think they have a, especially around our youth, a profound impact on uh, self-confidence. And we're seeing bullying online at epic yeah. proportions right now. Yeah. Like your thoughts on that and from a parent's perspective, you know, what should we be looking out for and how do we safeguard against that? Well, it's rough. It's, it's clearly a net negative in uh, early and late middle adolescence, clearly, right? Uh, we're seeing a suicide depression in young teenage girls going at, at a, an extraordinary rate. And most people will lay that at the feet of social media. Uh, a friend of mine uh, runs a website called, I'm going to blank on it, It'll come to me in a minute. It's, okay. uh, it's essentially a place you can go to get uh, suggestions on how to manage social media. I can tell you what this woman does. Her name is Lisa Stroman. She's a, uh, a, a attorney, uh, an FBI scholar, and a psychologist. And she only allows her kids on, on, a, on electronic media, I think it's one hour a day. And that's it, period. Mm -hmm. uh, she is horrified by what she's saying, and she treats it all day long. And her own management of her own kids is to simply take them off and to put all sorts of barriers and, and sort of, uh, you know, nannyware on the on the electronic media that she does let them use. Because we're, we're seeing, you know, average age of exposure to pornography is like age eight or nine now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's it, we don't even know the full impact of this, right. but we're certainly measuring it and seeing it. Digital yeah. Citizens Academy. 
dcakids.org is her place, Digital Citizens Academy. Yeah, DCA. and actually, while I uh, while I have you on that topic, I founded something called I Am Someone, an anti-bullying campaign uh, many years ago after the uh, death of Amanda Todd, who is in our hometown, and we developed and launched the first texting platform in Canada for kids to reach out and text uh, when they're in time of distress, and that is two one one two talk two one one two talk. Uh, and that's still available today. And it's amazing because, you know, we used to, to uh, you know, as a child, uh, get into an argument or a fight or be bullied at school. And we'd go home at 3 p.m. and close our door. That's right. But now, now kids can send the most insidious, the most damaging, vile comments through SMS or posted online. So the whole world uh, sees. So I think it's a real problem that we have to be very mindful of going forward. Yeah, it's, it's inescapable for them, right? Uh, right. It's. It, oh, uh, I, I'm seeing a comment here from Leslie. I, I want to talk about disease and illness in just a second after we, because I think people get very confused about that. So, so yeah, kids can't escape it. You're right. When in our day, we would go home and we would be with our friends that don't bully us. Right. Now you go out and you're in this social media cesspool where people are throwing barbs at you all day long. I mean, I, I as a, you know, a, an adult with a, a long, uh, you know, uh, pedigree of experiences behind me, I find it uncomfortable, if not miserable and impossible to tolerate. I, I can imagine what it would be like at 14. But let me let me um, do, I'm glad you brought up the disease concept. Um, uh, I forgot, That's Leslie, yeah. Leslie, there it is. Uh, so not releasing emotions, she said, has a great deal to do with the manifestation of illness and disease. L let me uh, talk about what what is a disease? This is something that people get very hung up on. So when I say that you know illnesses of the brain are common, just like illnesses of the, the elbow joint or anything else, uh, and th you have to understand what a disease is. Uh, and I want to distinguish disease from syndrome, okay? So first, let me tell you what a syndrome is. A syndrome is a common constellation of symptoms that are caused by a multiplicity of different disorders. So a good example of that is fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a syndrome, and it's caused by a number of different things. It's not just one unified genetics and one unified biology. It's a lot of different things. Or hypertension. Essential hypertension has a lot of different genetic underpinnings and has a lot of different issues in terms of how the heart and the kidney communicate with each other and the angiotensin converting enzyme system. It's not one thing. It's a series of different things. And it may be other things completely unrelated to that system, but still manifesting as high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is a syndrome. Disease is a very specific thing. Disease is a common genetic underpinning, and that genetics interacts with the environment in ways that create an abnormal state of physiology. We call that pathophysiology. That particular pathophysiology is manifested in signs and symptoms. Those So people like me can see those signs and symptoms. And those signs and symptoms, because we know what they're caused by, we can reflect back on the pathophysiology. We can anticipate what the natural history will be. In other words, how the signs and symptoms progress. And then somebody like me tries to do something to that natural history to make it move in a more healthy direction. We call that treatment. So it's genetic environment interaction abnormal physiology, manifest in signs and symptoms, follow a predictable pattern, a natural history with a predictable response to treatment. That's disease. 
And people get very uh, weird about brain diseases because they can't see the pathophysiology. The pathophysiology is in the brain. And we know a lot now about where the pathophysiology is on each of these syndromes, particularly addiction. Addiction, we know that it is a usurpation of the medial forebrain bundle, which is essentially the motivational systems in the brain, the parts of the brain that essentially motivates you to survive. But it also motivates you to go to work and to love your children and to uh, want to get up in the morning. That motivational system, that do-it-again system, gets token, taken over by the do-it-again drive for drugs. And again, the brain has two. This is another element of addiction. It's the brain has two systems. The brain has a wanting system. Right and a liking system. Uh, the, you have to kind of like drugs in order for you to get hooked up with them, but it's the wanting system that is the disease of addiction. Got you it. want it, wow. you don't like it anymore. Absolutely fascinating. You know, I often tell a story uh, of an episode that I saw many years ago. I think the first time I saw it was probably uh, on Oprah and it was about this uh, woman with seven kids and from everyone on the outside looking in, they just said, oh my God, this is the best mother on the planet. She loved these kids. She sprinted across the room. She hugged them. She told them she loved them a hundred times a day, but yet all seven kids in one way or another uh, struggled, attempted suicide, drugs, uh, confidence issues, um, behavioral issues. And and they, the interview was based on, you've been telling your kids what they can and can't do and how much you believe in them, how much you love them, but your own self, every time you walked in front of a mirror, you cringed. Or when they said, mom, you should start dating, you said, things like who would want to be with someone with seven kids and what what they actually identified it as it's what the kids observed it's never what the parent had said so i often tell that story because to our our leaders in our industry to our franchise owners to anyone in their family it's never what we say it's always what we do and what they observe can you maybe just talk about that because i know even your upbringing on money and your dad's upbringing on money and and what you know what the chain observed all the way through has a profound okay. impact so, so, so two two separate topics here. So sure. let's try Let's, to get into that. Right. Um, and if I if I gaff and forget, please get me I back will. on track. Yeah. So, so um, observation it's, basic. It's not even so much what kids see, though that is important. You're correct. It's what they feel. Okay. They feel what's going on in parents. Parents, you know, delude themselves like, oh, we're having trouble in our marriage, but we never let the kids see it. They feel it. And not only do they feel it, they blame themselves for it. Right. That is a normal feature in somebody under the age of 10 to blame everything that happens to them. And there's something called adverse childhood experiences, the ACE scale. I don't know if you guys make a lot of it in Canada, but finally we're making some of it here, which is that when you have more than three, four, or especially five adverse childhood illness, adverse childhood experiences, your probability of serious mental illness goes way up. Wow. particularly anxiety disorders, depression, and addiction, goes way up, like orders of magnitude. And an adverse child experience ex includes dad's not there, divorce. They see somebody engaged in domestic uh, abuse or aggression, uh, fighting in the home. Uh, somebody is in jail. Somebody is a substance user. Each one of those, we think it was, oh, kids are resilient. They get through this. No. They are major adverse childhood experiences and they add up. And if you get three of those, you can anticipate trouble from, a, from an emotional standpoint. And on top of that, uh, having, a, having a parent with mental illness is one of those adverse childhood experiences. So these things need attention and they need lots of it. So to, to, to transition into my own experience, right. um, I was uh, traumatized by uh, my father 
uh, around financial issues. He he grew up in the depression. We're immigrant family from Ukraine, escaping the Ukrainian genocide, get through various extreme means you know, of sponsorship. And uh, I mean, getting into this country in, at the turn of the 20th century was impossible, but they made it through, through Canada. They went to Toronto, to, Car right. to Hartford, to Chicago. And uh, ended up opening like a restaurant and then the depression hit, they lost everything. And they literally were uh, contemplating that they would not be able to you know, feed themselves. And that traumatized my father. So I was uh, raised with that feeling raining down on me my whole life, starting from about the age of two. I can remember my dad constantly telling me things like, and by the way, you know, I don't, this is not necessarily, well, because it's so excessive, it, it has not been, you, we opened our conversation talking about balance. Right. It's been very difficult for me to achieve balance because of this traumatic uh, feeling raining down on me. He would say, um, literally as I would grow as a child, needing clothing because I was outgrowing my shoes or my, first thing I would get would be a disquisition on how he had to walk through the snow in Chicago with shoes with holes in them. Then he would go, oh, oh, you need shoes? Okay, yeah, get shoes, sure. No, 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 get shoes. But then uh, tomorrow, you're going to have to come wave to me because I'm going to be in the poorhouse. Now, they'll let us wave at each other through the window, but you can't, you can't talk to me anymore. I'll be in the poorhouse. Yeah, yeah, because of, yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, get those shoes. Get those shoes. I know you need them. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I heard about the poorhouse until I was 15. And it's funny, he tried this on my kids, too, and my kids just laughed at him. So, so it's different when it's your parents and, and the grandparents. So. Incredible. So maybe just speak to me then about the poison of negativity. Well, it's not just negativity. It's trauma, trauma right? It's, right? It's traumatizing your kids. And let's define trauma. Um, trauma is exceeding the regulatory capacity of a child's brain to regulate in that moment. When you overwhelm a child's brain one way or another, either with aggression or weird body boundary violations or financial trauma, whatever it might be, or watching domestic abuse, all that shatters the regulatory system of a child. And two things happen. A, it floods the brain with cortisol and other chemicals that, uh, that dampen the growth of neurons. And it causes the child to not trust, which is required to enter the frame with another human being to build that emotional regulatory system I was talking about. It wow. turns out to build the capacity to regulate your emotion requires two brains over long periods of time. One brain emoting, the other people, the other brain listening, appreciating and reflecting back. That's the basic unit of development that we need for our brains to develop emotional regulation. And when you've been exposed to trauma, you exit the frame. It's too overwhelming. It's too shattering to get into that frame. And you go through life dysregulated, trying to find ways to regulate. And it, it never works. The kinds of things we reach for, the kinds of things our culture gives us, which includes things like drugs. And uh, they do work in the moment and then cause another problem. Right. Yeah. Incredibly insightful. Thank you. Um, I'm a huge fan of personal growth and, and personal development. What does Dr. Drew do to inspire you? Where do you uh, get your growth from? Uh, I did lots of therapy. I went to therapy for a very long period of time. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for mental health. I had an anxiety disorder, depression, as I mentioned earlier. I, I'm serious mental illness. I can be any other person with a brain right. uh, and trauma in their childhood. And uh, it was extremely effective for me. I'm a particularly a fan of emotionally focused therapies, uh, which is, again, just a recreation of that deep connection between two people and building that capacity to, to contact your primary emotions and have them spontaneously expressed. 
Um, but there are many other evidence-based treatments out there that work for many different things. Um, it, that's not so much personal growth, but uh, I would say sort of attending to your health. In terms of personal growth, uh, I would say the number one and number two, well, three things. Uh, exercise every day, read, read and read. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a we have a, a lazy person's me lazy person's version of that uh, these days, which is podcasts. Right. Now uh, I found iTunes U about ten years ago, and I listened to just thousands of lectures, and they they sort of shut that all down. And then thankfully podcasts emerged uh, as the substitution for that. And I have learned so much uh, from listening to podcasts. Uh, so don't don't um, don't spend your time with easy listening. Find challenging right. topics that expand your knowledge base. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Find challenging topics that expand your knowledge base, right? No easy listening. Uh, incredible. And I listen to, listen to physics lectures. Yeah, physics, yeah. Which I, which I am not, was not interested in, but I, I found it challenging. And I thought Funny. I, I, I should understand this. You know, it's interesting because I'm a, I'm a lifelong uh, learner and reader, but uh, I'm learning how to fly helicopters right now. And the ground school and the aerodynamics and the Bernoulli's principle and the three laws of the Newton's physics principles. And like, oh my goodness, it is so incredibly difficult, but it feels so good to actually start to understand this and the challenge the brain. I mean, I have this appetite of desire for, for more of it. It's crazy. Yeah, the Greeks sort of recognize this. And it's a funny thing is that you, you have to, you have to educate to a certain point and then it becomes a self perpetuating, gratifying process. Uh, I don't know what that threshold is for Some people have it automatically. I know for me, it took a very, very rigorous undergraduate education before my brain was nimble enough to be able to do this on its own. Uh, but once you get there, it is extremely enjoyable. You know, think about what it was like to write a paper when you were in eighth grade or something. You'd sit and look right. at the page and, oh, my God, that was not enjoyable. Uh, yeah. Or people, if you get a musical instrument when you were you know, working on the basics, oh, my God. But once you get to that point of freedom where you can enjoy it, it's it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Um, I've heard you say or read somewhere that Teddy Roosevelt was your favorite uh, president. What do you what think a about yeah, one of, okay, one of them. What do you think about the toxic political environment uh, today in down south in the USA, for instance? I, I'm dismayed by it. I'm I don't understand it fully. I don't know what's what has happened to us. I don't recognize the country I live in. I, I feel last few days I, I've been thinking that us thinking more about our commitment to freedom and and agency. Uh, has been sort of bowled over for some reason and we're sort of becoming uh, you know we're becoming robots that are responding to social media and cable news I, i'm encouraged just last few i don't know this is something taking form for me i don't quite know what it is yet but i'm encouraging people you heard me say the word fight that we need to fight and navigate and i we need to express our agency our agency has been suddenly taken from us in a very strange way uh teddy roosevelt you know is uh if you want to uh i'm, I'm Ed, Edmund Morris's uh, biography on him is fantastic. And Teddy Roosevelt was uh, had bipolar disorder, very clearly, very yeah. clearly hypomanic. Yeah. And, and again, a lot of business people are hypomanic. And, right. and you've got to, you know, hypomania is not to say a bad thing. It's bad when it flips into to, uh, to, to mania or if you have long depressive periods. And clearly Teddy Roosevelt had some very long, very severe depressive episodes. But he was, uh, he was hypomanic all the time. He, when he was yeah. a police commissioner in New York, he wandered the streets. He couldn't sleep. He wandered the streets at night and beat people up. Yeah. Now, he was so wow. agitated. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't call him grandiose because his, his, his sort of reality assessment was consistent with who he was in the world, right? And right. he was a pretty interesting guy. 
Uh, yeah, my favorite is Abraham Lincoln. That's the one I'm most fascinated with. T Teddy was my number two. And how do you compare him to Trump? Well, I, I, they're both hypomanic, right? right? I mean, clearly Trump is hypomanic, and, they, and Teddy was extremely narcissistic, and Trump has those kinds of qualities as well. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I don't, you know, my, my thing is when, when people start to talk about the mental health and personality construct of a leader, that's that's too big an order for me. Right. Because because here's what I want people to know. You can talk about that and you can sort of contemplate it and think about it. And what do they have? What don't they have? But whether or not that personality and those mood proclivities are what the historical moment needs, I have no idea. That is way outside my pay grade. <laughs> in other words, there have been some really, frankly, nutty people in the White House over the years right. that uh, served the historical moment. I mean, Kennedy... Kennedy was was strung out on amphetamines. I don't know if you know this right. history, but he literally did cartwheels naked down the down the hallway of a hotel. He got so psychotic. Crazy. Uh, is that you know, should I judge John F. Yeah. Kennedy's uh, presidency over that? No. Uh, yeah. But th these are human beings that take these roles, and yeah. uh, you already have to have to be exceptional to go after this. And exceptional usually means things like hypomania and certain amount of narcissism. You got to have. Don't. I, what I'm saying is. It, what I, and I would urge this to also, in terms of how you approach, we talk, started this conversation talking about our family members and close close right. relationships. Don't allow the labels to be pejorative. The labels right. are just labels. They're just a way of understanding humans. Amen. As soon as you let, to me, I, and unfortunately, I use them so um, with such ease and so readily to, to use them as a way of understanding people. People think I'm being pejorative. I'm not. I'm just trying to understand what they are and who they are. What you know? What what's how they're likely to click. I'm I'm jealous of people that are hypomanic and don't right. have to sleep. Only sleep four hours a night. I'd love that. That yeah. would be great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, talking about that and the and the um, you know how it affects uh, sort of leadership and leadership qualities. What are two or three attributes that you think are absolutely required to be a great leader? Whether it's in business or in your family or on the sports sideline. Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to come up with a simple recipe for this because, as you know, leadership is a, is a constellation of issues. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the specific leadership uh, choices that are effective have a lot to do with the makeup, the individual that's doing the leading. Right. So, as you know, there's different leadership styles. And if there are, um, okay, I mean, it's really pretty simple for me in terms of the kinds of things that, that when I've stepped in cow pie, it's usually because A, I was hubristic. I wasn't, I wasn't being humble in the moment. So a, a, a heaping helping of humility at all times to at least to cause you to reassess and think and not react um, impulsively because that, you know, that there may be a certain amount of hubris in that. So humility, number one. Uh, and I'm not sure this is the order in which they're important. So I'm just going to give you three and enumerate them. Okay. Uh, number two, um, see, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think whether it needs to be empathy or compassion, probably more compassion than empathy. Okay. Uh, empathy itself 
we, we lack way too much empathy generally in our world, but, but empathy is something that requires a kind of quiet reflection and the ability to really feel what another person's feeling. I'm, I'm not sure that's what leaders need. That could get confusing. I think it's compassion at all times. And if you do it with humility, you're looking at other people's points of view as valid in all circumstances from their point of view. And if you're compassionate about that, I think that would, would serve you. And then thirdly, well, I, I, I guess this is, uh, and I'm curious if I'm, if I'm saying things that, you've, that are sort of commonplace in the leadership literature, but the, the thing is always, uh, this is something I've, uh, when I was teaching medicine, I always uh, ra railed on my residents about this, which is uh, think things through carefully and don't stop at your conclusion, because you may be wrong, have a backup plan at all times. I always tell my residents that you, you tell me what your reasoning is, make your choice, apply the therapy, and if you're and, and if you're wrong, and if I think you're wrong, I'm still not gonna criticize you. I may, you know, talk about why I think you're wrong, and maybe think together about what you might have done differently, but I'm not gonna be critical. But if that was wrong and it turns out bad, what was your backup plan? And if you don't have a backup plan, now I'm furious. Now I'm angry because now you're gonna let that patient get in serious trouble because yeah. you didn't think things through properly. So I think your three answers on uh, key attributes of leadership is, is different from a lot of the CEOs and authors and very high profile people that I've interviewed in the past. Uh, and I love it. I mean, number one, I couldn't agree, a heaping helping of humility. I think that's so important. I mean, people start getting a little success and they start to think they have this swag and they can walk and they are something that they're not. And that's to a me, that just, flaw. that repels people. That's, yeah, that's how you get into trouble too. Right, oh, terrible. And then I compassion. Get and then yeah, compassion, compassion, you know what? Like, it's funny because today in, in this world, I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming at us and life is hard. Let's just, you know what, call it for what it is. And, and we get, you know, we get numb to, you know, to the struggles of others. And I think to be compassionate and to really listen with your whole body when you're speaking to somebody and be well, there that for is, Now you're back to empathy. And I, I and so, right. so I could not agree with you more. This Now, now you're doing, talking about a different thing, which is listening sure. skills. Right? Now, now, people think listening is just paying attention. No, it is not. It is it is paying attention is where this starts. Then hearing everything and making sure you hear it that you you understand it in the in what's you what you do you understand is attempting to be transmitted to you verbally. But then, as you said, and this is the part I've never heard anybody else say this to me except you. Uh, so this is interesting. Which is, I think I, I learned long ago how to listen with your entire body, and what that means to me is uh, I am not only just listening, I'm not only, I'm focusing profoundly on you, but at the same time, I'm listening to what my body is telling me. What am I experiencing? Am I smelling something, hearing something? Are there physical things I'm, I'm feeling as I'm talking to this person that aren't me? They aren't typical of right. what I would feel. And then try to understand what that could possibly mean and even bring it up to the other person to see if it does have meaning to them. Uh, absolutely love it. And then third, think things through. But once you think you've thought it through, go beyond that and keep yeah. reaching. And if you have to pivot, I always say to people, it's okay. Like we all have, you know, bad days and we've all made yeah. bad decisions and it's okay to slide. But you know what? The next 24 hours is a completely clean blank slate, right? So mm -hmm. think things through all the way until you think you've solved them and then continue to think beyond. Remarkably powerful. I, I'm curious, what what do most people in the in the leadership world talk? What do they say? They talk about uh, convention, uh, uh, you know, conviction. Uh, they talk about, um, you know, just people skills, communication, um, ambition. 
you know, never die attitude, all that regular, you know, that's all important. That's all, that all, yeah, that's, I, nothing that's, is, that's why I stopped reading literature, right. uh, 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 leadership literature. It, it all feels, is, it feels like platitudes to me a little bit. Like, yeah, oh, that, that sort, of, sort of goes without saying. You know yeah. I mean? Well, no, I agree. You know what? Nothing is more important than personal connection. But, but there, there is one other piece there that, that yeah, business is relationships, right? Um, but, but being a good speaker is another thing that I, it, you know, when I got fascinated with Abraham Lincoln, um, the first thing that, that jumped out at me, I thought, Oh, this guy knows how the, his primary skill is speaking. That's his yeah. primary skill. I mean, really, it was reasoning, but but his ability to reason with extraordinary clarity and then communicate that in a way that was extraordinary. That and he would. I don't know if you know this about Abraham Lincoln. From the time he ran the local post office, which is kind of not what he really did, was sort of more of a general store. Um, he, whenever there were more than two people there, he'd literally stand up on a soapbox or an apple crate and start speaking to them and telling them stories. And he, wherever there was anything that would look like an audience, he wanted to talk. He wanted to share ideas. And he would do the same stories and ideas over and over and over and over again until he refined them to the point where he knew they were landing on the audience. I mean, go go read the Lincoln Douglas, Douglas debates. They're extraordinary. If you want to learn how to do public speaking, just read those debates. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely will. That's uh, Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing. Um, we'll just wind down the last couple of minutes here. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have, and we have to catch ourselves all the time, and it's a lifelong pursuit, but sometimes we just default to judgment, right? We, 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 you know, we'll tell everyone we don't judge. We're non-judgmental, but we sure. actually judge. Sure. How do we control and recognize when we're judging somebody and making a decision on somebody else's thoughts about somebody or how do we avoid so, those? So give me a context for this. What are you thinking about when you ask that question? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, right? A lot of people won't make decisions or they won't, you know, get to, to you know, to to know, um, you know, a certain person, but they'll make a decision on that person or that company based on the opinions of others. And I often mm. say to people, once you get to know people, you'll be surprised at what they have inside and your perspective yeah. or opinion will be remarkably different. It's yeah. just we judge for a living, it seems. Yeah, we we do. And we have to learn to to... To, to trust our judgment, but there are intermediate steps before you, uh, you know, before you fully, I mean, you, you should listen to your instincts, listen to your judgment, but do some reality testing, I guess is always a good idea. And this harkens back to what I was saying at the beginning about contact with people. You can get very judgy very quick if you don't right. contact people. You That's just, what you I mean. Put, yeah. You know, there's something called the uncanny valley. Have you heard of the uncanny valley? No, I haven't. Okay. So this, I somehow, I don't know exactly how this figures into this phenomenon yet, but I'm convinced it figures in here somehow, which is the, that this is out of the tech literature, which is that robots that look more and more and more human become appealing, 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 appealing to us, more appealing until they're just very nearly actually human. And then we hate them. We're, <laughs> we're, we're disgusted by them and we're repelled. <sighs> and, uh, my, and my sense is that that's what happens when people are different than us. We go, oh, we're in the uncanny valley. And that's exactly, oh, the, yeah, there it is. What is the uncanny valley? And that's exactly when we need to lean in. That's exactly when we need to go, I need to make contact here. I need to understand why I'm having, and disgust is a very powerful emotion. It, it, it pushes us away from people. And don't don't allow those things to, to get in the way of making contact and, and learning more because you will expand, not just, as you said, relationships is what this is all about. You will grow because of that contact. Mm, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, 
I think the last question that I'll, I'll leave you with today, and I could go on and on because I have so many more uh, to speak to you about, but I appreciate your time uh, so far. It's been, you did. been so incredible and insightful. So let me ask you this. Hang on. My wife is working on the picture here. If you see it flashing on and off. Yeah. I think this is good, Susan. I think you did good. It's only yeah. the last few minutes of the show, though. We're okay. We're good. She can't stand it less than perfect. So it, it does look better. Hey, Susan, this is a 10 out of 10. You've knocked it out of the park. Gary's talking to you. He's very happy with the technical. Yeah. He's good. He's good. You're, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Susan. So, you know, I had uh, yeah. a few months ago, I had Lewis Howes and Lewis Howes uh, was on the episode 200 million uh, downloads, uh, the school of greatness. Yeah. And he talks about defining greatness and, yeah. you know, how we have to define it uh, to ourselves in our life. I'd like to ask Dr. Drew, what is greatness to you? Uh, I mean, greatness is pretty simple to me. It's doing something extraordinary. Uh, and that extraordinary thing can be very specific to you. Like it may be some athletic sort of endeavor you want to do or flying a helicopter. Uh, I mean, these are great things. If you can affect more people, it gets my attention more. I, I value it more. Um, but if you can if you can affect other lives in a positive way, I think that's great. Uh, I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to define it much beyond that. I mean, if you need to be great in a different way for yourself to feel good or to feel like you've had a meaningful life, also great. But yeah. I really think <laughs> it's about, I think it's about doing something that affects other people in a, a positive way. And if that the more extraordinary that is, the the, the greater it is. Awesome. Is there anything that? Uh that is near and dear to your heart that we haven't touched on that you would like uh, listeners Always to. Something. I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I've been preoccupied with the COVID thing and sort of how our government is responding to it and trying to keep people out of the mental health abyss. Right. By, and lately it's been by encouraging action and self-care and navigation rather than passive powerlessness. It's just so, so unhealthy for us. Um, I'm when before COVID and probably long afterwards, I'm preoccupied with the homeless problem in the United States, which is really a problem with our mental health system. Right? We don't treat serious mental illness the way we should. Uh, and uh, it's funny. Let me put a call out here. If anybody knows Kanye, Kanye has just recently been talking about, has recently been talking about how he wants to handle this problem. And he, he said something really great. Speaking of greatness, he said, you know, if I have all the information, I'll generally make a good decision. I thought that's probably true. So I want to download on him, make sure he has all the information about homelessness and see if he can make it have an effect there. So if anybody knows Kanye, please put him in touch with me. So uh, unbelievable, powerful, and, uh, and a great way to leave that. Uh, Dr. Drew, on behalf of uh, myself, the Level Up series, all of our uh, listeners out there, I want to just let you know how incredibly impactful you are. You're very insightful. And the fact that you continue to give back, uh, you know, you are a, a leading example. Well, of, let me just say, let me just say, I, I, I had this extraordinary clinical experience that doctors aren't having today, where I was living in both the medical and the psychiatric world a lot and seeing everything and those worlds are separated now uh, and exclusive and it's a problem um so i have a lot of insight from my clinical experience and i'm very opinionated because of it um but i feel like i have to download it i feel like I, i've got to share it to, to make sure it it doesn't go to the you know out to the vapors because they're they're not a lot of the younger physicians are not getting trained that way today so it, it's very important to me 
Yeah, and it resonates, and you can see that clearly. Thank you so much for uh, attending our podcast today. Uh, I'll be uh, reaching out in the near future, and I appreciate everything you do. Your work you is absolutely uh, incredible. I want to say a special thank to our sponsor, First Canadian Title, uh, and I want to remember, or sorry, uh, remind all of our listeners that uh, one of the authors of one of the greatest business books ever written in the history of the world is called The E-Myth and The E-Myth Revisited. Uh, Michael Gerber uh, is going to be on our upcoming uh, show. So tune in for that. Uh, to DLC, to all of our people, our agents, and the public who continue to use us for the lowest mortgage rates in Canada, uh, thank you for all the support over the years. And if you're getting a mortgage anywhere else, you're probably paying too much. Dr. Drew, thank you. Have a great day and bye-bye. Thank you. You too.